Have you ever wondered how people waited before cell phones? Right, like if you're at the doctor or the dentist and you have to wait a little bit, what do you do? You pull out your cell phone to help pass the time, right? But what did people do before that? Well, if you were at the doctor's office, there are these things called magazines. They had stories and photos in them. You could flip through them aimlessly. But if you were a kid, you didn't care about the latest health trend, which is all the doctor's office ever had. And so they had these books called highlight books. And they had activities and puzzles in them, such as the what's wrong with this picture puzzle, where they would have a picture of a normal occurrence like a baseball game, but then they would change just a couple of details in such a ridiculous comical way, and your job was to find them. So like you might see the kid getting ready to hit the baseball, but instead of a bat, he's holding like a fish or something like that. And that's how you were expected to pass the time, to wait. Now you're probably thinking two things right now. Caleb, thank you so much for the history lesson. It really makes me appreciate my cell phone. But also, too, what does this have to do with what we're talking about tonight? Our story tonight is a lot like one of those puzzles. There are just a few things that are wrong or out of place with it. So tonight we're going to be looking at the story of Jonah. We're going to familiarize ourselves with the story. We're going to try and figure out what those few misplaced things are. And that's where we're going to find why this text matters for us today. That makes it sound good? Okay, let's start in Jonah chapter 1. Our story begins with the Lord coming and speaking to Jonah. Now, Jonah is a prophet of God. His job is to declare God's messages to the northern kingdom of Israel. And so we can assume that this was kind of a common occurrence. This wasn't unusual for him. But what is unusual is that God now wants Jonah to go on a business trip. The Lord comes to Jonah and says to him in verse 2 of chapter 1, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah has absolutely no interest in accepting that assignment. So he gets up and he flees to a place called Tarshish. Uh, and that would be like uh, if I told you, I need you to go take a package to Nashville and you started driving to Los Angeles. You'd just be going in the complete opposite direction. And so Jonah boards a boat to go, and he immediately goes down to his quarters and falls asleep. The Lord, however, knows exactly where he is, and so he brings a storm against the boat, and the sailors get spooked. They can sense that this is not normal. A and so these rough pagan sailors decide to cast lots to figure out if someone is causing this. And whose name should pop up? But Jonah's. And so they go, they wake him up and said, who are you? What have you done? He's like, well, I'm Jonah. I work for the Lord. If you want to solve this problem, throw me into the sea. These guys are rough sailors, but they are not murderers. And so they try to figure out another way to get back safely to shore. But the more they try, the worse the storm gets. And so they ask God for forgiveness and they chuck Jonah overboard. Instantly, the sea stops, it's calm, and they all start following the Lord for quite obvious reasons. Jonah, however, is sinking to his death. That is, until he is swallowed up by a great fish. And this is really the hardest part of the story for us to swallow, pun intended. Uh, because it, it's just hard for us to wrap our minds around that there is a freshwater fish that has 
consumed a man. <laughs> and part of that issue is actually our imagination, the way that we imagine this fish. Uh, because of things like Jonah, a VeggieTales movie, or our illustrated children's Bibles, we think that this fish is this monstrous, ginormous thing. Like, think Monstro from the Pinocchio movies, who could just swallow up a ship easily. That's what we think ate Jonah. That's just not the case. Jonah's, Jonah's watery quarters were not the deluxe suite. They were quite cramped. And I know uh, you probably want me to classify what species of fish this was, and I really wish I could do that. I am curious as well. However, the Bible is not interested in doing that. What it is interested in us knowing is that Jonah spent three days and nights in the belly of a fish, and he came to a revelation. Chapter 2 tells us that he realizes that God has always been with him. He has always cared for him. He has been faithful to him, even in this watery tomb. And so he believes, he confesses that the Lord will be his salvation. And that is absolutely true. The Lord commands the fish to vomit Jonah onto dry land. And so chapter 3 is really just chapter 1, take 2. Because God comes to Jonah, now drenched in vomit, and he says the same thing as chapter 1. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. And this time, Jonah does so. He goes to Nineveh and starts proclaiming the message, which we find in Jonah chapter 3, verse 4. Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Not really the most compelling message I have ever heard, but it, it really cuts to the heart of the Ninevites. And they begin to, as a city, repent. Now, repentance is a very interesting thing because we often use it as uh, synonymous with apologizing or saying, I'm sorry. And certainly being grieved by our wrongdoing is part of repentance. But the other part is there needs to be a change in direction. You're doing a 180 from, I used to do this thing, now I hate this, and I'm doing something completely different. 180 turn. And the way that that was expressed back in ancient times was to put on this itchy, burlappy clothing called sackcloth. Right? And, and so... Repentance is just sweeping the city. Everyone is getting in on it. Even the cows are joining in the party, if you will. Uh, look, at, look at what the king commands in uh, Jonah 3, starting in verse 7. After hearing Jonah's message, he issues this proclamation. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And that is exactly what God does. God shows them mercy and he relents from destroying them. It's really a great story of God's mercy and grace. But remember, we're playing a game. What's wrong with this story? What, what is so out of place? And, and almost everything is out of place in this story when you think about it. Let me show you what I mean. The sailors, who are heathens, and the Ninevites, who are barbarians, who should be closed off to God, are both humble and receptive to everything he does. The great fish 
and the ocean or in the sea both should be sources of death and destruction for Jonah are passages of safety in life. But here's the real kicker. Here's the big obvious thing that's out of place. That's just wrong with this story. It's Jonah himself. The spokesperson of God doesn't want to speak. And and that's the theme that flows through those first three chapters. Jonah runs away from God's clear instruction to go to Nineveh. And then God corners him in a storm. And what does he do? Well, he convinces the sailors to kill him, to throw him overboard so he doesn't have to share the message, so he doesn't have to speak. God won't let him die, though, and so he forces Jonah to go deliver the message. What does Jonah do then? He gives a five-word message, five little words in Hebrew to the Ninevites. And he forgets a few important things, like what they have done wrong, what they should do now. Oh, and by the way, God. God does not show up in Jonah's message. It's almost as if the spokesperson of God is trying to sabotage his message. It's almost as if Jonah really doesn't want them to repent. And that is exactly what is happening. Jonah doesn't want the Ninevites to repent. See, while we often stop at chapter 3 because it's a nice ending, the story continues on in chapter 4, which has Jonah's response, and that's actually the heart and point of the story. Jonah responds to God's mercy and grace in this way. Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. But God's actions displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from destruction and disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live." Yes, you read that right. Jonah is angry that God spared an entire city. Jonah is upset that God is gracious and merciful, that he is acting in character. And he reveals in his prayer that this is the reason he ran away, because he was so desperate to make sure that God didn't show grace and mercy to the Ninevites. And that should shock you on two levels. It should shock you that anyone has that type of hatred for another person. It it should also shock you that a prophet of God has this level of hatred, that he would want God to act ungodlike in order for a message not to get through. So why does he hate the Ninevites so much? Well, the Ninevites were the barbaric political enemies of Israel. They were the superpower of the day. And when I say barbaric, I mean they were absolutely gruesome. Like their war tactics were so bad that when cities saw them coming, they would just surrender rather than risk being tortured and mutilated by them. These were the enemies of Israel. And Jonah was quite the nationalist. He was all about building up and helping Israel and actively deterring its political enemies. And what that means in our passage is this that he wants the blessings and promises of God to stay in-house. He wants it to stay with Israel. He doesn't want it to go to his enemies. And so he is angry with God. And he tells himself, he's so angry that he wants to die. But rather than scold him, God just asks him if he has any right to be angry. To which Jonah just storms off, 
and sits outside of the city, hoping beyond hope that the repentance won't take and God will be forced to annihilate the people. While he's sitting there, God decides to allow a vine to grow up over Jonah and give him some shade from the hot sun, which I'm sure Jonah appreciated. But then the next day, God tells a worm to go and attack the plant, to devour it. And so Jonah loses his shade, and he also loses his marbles. He calls out to God in verse 8 that it is better for me to die than to live. And I'm just, I'm just going to read the, ex, the final exchange between him and God that closes out this story. Here's what God says in response to that. Do you do well to be angry for the plants? And Jonah said, yes, I do well to be angry. I am angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night, and it perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? In other words, Jonah, you have no right to be angry. You are upset about a plant that you did nothing for. Shouldn't you be concerned about the 100,000 plus people in Nineveh? The end. That's how the story ends. It doesn't tell us how Jonah responds. Does he storm off again? Does he see the error in his ways and repent? We don't know because that's not the point. The point of the book of Jonah is to function kind of like a mirror. You know, mirrors are really annoying things, aren't they? Because if you look at yourself in a photo, you can edit it, crop it, touch it up, filter it until you like what you see. But when you look in a mirror, what you see is what you are. And the book of Jonah is like a mirror. It reveals to us exactly what we are. And it turns out we are a lot like Jonah. See, we all think that in some way we are exceptional. Much like Jonah thought that he and the northern kingdom were exceptional, that they should receive certain privileges, benefits, and blessings from God. But God doesn't work that way. The story of Jonah teaches us that God extends mercy and grace not just to those who are deserving, but to his enemies as well. And what the book of Jonah is asking us at the close is this. Are you okay that God loves your enemies? And the point is this, we certainly should be. We should rejoice that God extends mercy to our enemies because God extended mercy to his enemies, a.k.a. you. See, Romans 5 tells us that contrary to our perception, we are not exceptional. We are God's enemies, undeserving of his kindness and mercy. But God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, while we were still his enemies, Christ died for us. And it's this realization of who we are that humbles us and changes the way we see God's mercy to us and our enemies. 